Man, this stage feels to, uh, smells terrific with that oil, which of course came from the Holy Land. Amazon certainly wouldn't have gotten it anywhere else. <laughs> on the church calendar, uh, not our Hope Point calendar, but on the church calendar of 2,000 years, Palm Sunday, this Sunday, has always been a very special uh, event for the church because it marks the beginning of the last seven days of the life of Christ on earth when he entered Jerusalem on a donkey with all of the people in the crowd shouting praises to him and spreading palm branches and even their cloaks on <clears throat> the streets of the capital city. Mark 11 says, when they brought the colt to Jesus, another name for a donkey in the Bible, uh, and threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread the palm branches they had cut in the fields. There are some churches that this Sunday is so important, they actually have their people bring palm branches and are part of the worship service. And you say, why don't we do that? Well, we did. If you go down the children's hall, uh, Laura Timmons, our children's director, did a marvelous job of giving you a tour of the final week of, uh, in the life of Christ with palm branches on the on the floor, we're very grateful for, for that thrill for our students this, this year. Now, all four Gospels tell this story, and you need a little bit of help from all four Gospels because every writer sees it from a different angle, so we'll be going back and forth, not always in, in Mark today. But it's interesting, the last week of the life of Jesus Christ, just the last week of his life, takes up one half of the book of John. And there's a message in that. Out of the 24 chapters of the book of John, half of it is dedicated to seven days, which is just another reminder for us that nothing matters in this world if Jesus hadn't died and resurrected from the grave. Not his teaching, not his miracles, that the most important thing he did was to die on a cross and rise from the dead. Do you understand that nothing matters in your life if that has not affected you? Because if Christ has not affected you, he had not come. That means that when your body is placed in the ground, that's the last stopping place for you if Palm Sunday did not occur. So Palm Sunday is massive in its importance because it is the beginning of the defeat of the two great enemies of life, sin and death. Now, if you think it was a little bit of a frenzy in Jerusalem during Palm Sunday, as you read the different accounts, you are spot on. Jerusalem was always a frenzy during this particular time of a Jewish holiday called Passover because thousands and tens of thousands of Jews came. It was a festive party atmosphere. But there was always a little bit of concern by the Romans who occupied Israel, that it might be on this particular holiday season that the Jews would revolt, that there would be an insurrection. So the Romans were always nervous during Palm Sunday and Passover. But this one was a little bit different because of the arrival of a man named Jesus. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now let me assure you, these people are not singing praises to Jesus because of what the way you sang praises to Jesus. They're not singing praises to him because he had come to deliver them from sin. They're singing praises because they think he is going to deliver them from the Roman Empire. 
They're like many Americans today who do not believe their greatest problem in life is sin. Their greatest need in life is to overthrow a political person they don't like. Jesus said, your greatest problem is in your heart, not in your nation's capital. Every verse in the Old Testament spoke of a coming king. So at this time, the people were literally in a frenzy thinking, was Jesus the miracle worker that he's described of in these verses? Is he such a miracle worker that he's going to be the one that will powerfully lead us in revolt? In fact, nobody had ever seen the kind of miracles that Jesus performed over nature, over disease, over demons, and even over death. Because when you read this account in the book of John, that Palm Sunday, the entrance into Jerusalem on this donkey, something interesting happened right before that, and that was the raising of a dead man named Lazarus. He had been dead. Jesus had, had raised dead people before, but nobody that's ever been dead for four days. Four days. Jesus raised him, and so now there was an extra frenzy because not just the holiday season of Passover, but everybody had come to the hometown of, Beth, of Lazarus. It was a little village called Bethany to see the man raised from the dead and the life giver who was responsible for the miracle. So when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, you can understand there's a fever pitch of excitement. It's like a load of kindling ready to go off. And Jesus, in their minds, is the match that's going to set this whole insurrection on fire. But you're going to know that within six days, when Jesus revealed to them, I'm not coming to overthrow Rome, all of their praises to him as king turned into shouts of crucify him and put him on a, on a cross. But it is amazing, despite their misunderstanding of who he was, Jesus never changed his mission and his message to suit culture. What a lesson from us that we never look to culture and what they're telling us they need in order to determine what we speak. We have our ear to heaven and our eyes to God and say, what is your message to culture, God? Because you know what culture needs. We don't know what culture needs. Culture doesn't know what culture needs, but God does. And that's why Jesus stayed on message. There's always going to be governments uh, that do sickening things and sinful things, and it's always been this way. And there's always going to be elites who rule the common people simply to stay in office, and they don't care about the good of the people they serve. So in all of the millennia of history, there's always been people that have wanted to overthrow their government. I mean, in just a few days, Jesus Christ would be standing before Pilate. If he had wanted to, it would have been Pilate standing before him, begging for his life. But Jesus did not come to establish a kingdom in that way. Palm Sunday is about a different kind of king. And there are seven indications that Jesus is a different kind of king in this account. First, he's a king without earthly possessions. Mark 11 begins like this. As they approached Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt or donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And this is interesting. If anyone asks you, why are you doing that? You just tell them, the Lord needs it. 
You should just marvel at that, how that sentence finishes. There is no greater word in life than the word Lord used in the Old Testament to describe the God of creation, the God of history, the God who sees to the, 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 the rising and falling of kings, the God who created every single person who's ever lived and all of culture, the Lord. That doesn't sound like somebody who needs anything from people. And yet the Lord needed something. Let me ask you a question. If you were in a position in life that you had done so well financially that you never had another need, would you make a decision at all that the next day would require that you go ask somebody because you're in need? If you had it all, would you ever give it away so now you're needy? Of course you wouldn't do that. This is what makes Jesus Christ so marvelous as our Savior. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus was not like the ruling class who had no idea of what it was like for the rest of the common people who lived in the land. In order to relate to all of humanity, Jesus Christ became like all of humanity and gave away his rights by absorbing the skin of man. He owned everything. Yet now he has needs. Look at the needs that Jesus had in his ministry. This is God in need. He needed a group of women to follow him to financially support his ministry. He needed to borrow a bed and a house to sleep at night. The first time he preached on the Sea of Galilee, he had to borrow a boat. And when they crucified him and they laid him in a grave, he had to borrow a tomb. This is God in need, needing to borrow from the very people that he created. Jesus gave away a kingdom he had the right to keep so that we might inherit a kingdom we didn't have the right to enter. I hope you will contemplate this week, the most important week of the year, as we go to Good Friday and the Resurrection Sunday, that Jesus had needs because he gave up everything for you. I hope this will also affect the way that you view your possessions. If our master, whom we love and sing to and pray to, if he came and the goal of his life was not to acquire, how can that be our goal? Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive and then lived it out. So when your master comes to you and says, I need your donkey, I need your time, I need your attendance, how could you possibly look at him and say, oh, no, no, that's mine? It was his too, and he gave it away. And let me stress also, if the owner had said no to Jesus on the use of that donkey, can you imagine the blessing that that owner would have missed? 
His donkey had been chosen to carry Jesus Christ to the cross to die for the sins of the world to rise for our justification from all guilt. And when that donkey came back to him, and it did, can you imagine the new joy that that owner had because precisely that he had given it away? The greatest satisfaction in life doesn't come from keeping and hoarding. It comes from giving. Second characteristic of our king is your gifts have value to the king. He does need them. You shouldn't hear. It's not a good statement when they say God doesn't need things from you. Yes, he does. And he needed a a donkey. He needed a boot. He needs things. Whenever he made the decision to enter the body of humanity, he began at that moment to need things. And he does everything in the world, everything in the world that he does, he does through our gifts that he needs. This is what we've been talking about over the past three weeks. Everything that's in the mind of God for this world, he accomplishes through the gifts that you give back to him. So you need to hear Jesus tell his disciples, and you get that donkey, because I need it. How in the world could you withhold something from Jesus who says, I need that? Can you imagine what the owner of the donkey felt like years later when he's sitting around like at the local tavern and everybody's telling the best stories of life? He says, I got a story. Jesus Christ used my donkey to get to the cross and to save you from sin on my donkey. You know, during the past few weeks, talking all about these gifts, you know, it's like I did it for three weeks and I felt like I sort of, you know, squeezed that towel about as much as you would let me. So, but I have one more thing to say about gifts. Some of you during that whole time were sending me a message of, I don't have anything to give God. My life is, you know, my life's not great. I don't have a talent. I'm not, I'm not very educated. I, I'm a, I don't have, you know, much of a standing in society. And, and I just want to tell you, what makes your gift special is not you. It's who it's used for. That donkey was not special until Christ sat on it. The owner was not special until he gave it. It is what your gift is used for that turns you into an extraordinary person. An average Major League Baseball cost $6. You put it in the hand of Garrett Cole of the Yankees and it's worth $36 million. It's what your gift is used for that makes it useful and precious. What made everything special was the one riding on it. Not your talent, not your wealth, not your power, who you use it for. And you know what's so amazing about this is you really never know how it's going to end up when you give God your time and your talent, your treasure, and you say, all right, here it is. How in this world can this make a difference? You never know why you're doing it. What's happening? You know, 
in our gift study the past three weeks, we were looking at the Apostle Paul, and he was writing one church, a church in Asia Minor called Ephesus, and he was writing them a little letter, 3,000 words. I counted the words this week, 3,000 words in the book of Ephesians. And my, my sermon today is 4,600 words. So I wrote more than Paul. <laughs> Yet his book ended up, in, I mean, his little letter one letter from a Roman prison cell to one church of 30 people, it ended up in the New Testament. You never know what God's going to do with your gift. Just give it to him. And don't try to predict what he's going to do with it. Everybody wants to do a great thing for God, right? I want to do something great for God. Well, let me tell you what greatness is. Greatness is it's being faithful in small things over a long time. There's a third thing we learn about this king from Palm Sunday. He returns everything you give to him. Look what else Jesus told the disciples when they were going to go talk to the owner of the donkey. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. There are many people in this world, maybe some in this room, who are very, very smart about financial matters, financial strategies, and yet you have missed the most intelligent and wisest, most practical principle in all of the financial world. Down in Mark 10.30, it's just a promise in Scripture, you can look it up later, that Jesus says, whatever you give me, I'm going to give you a hundred times back. Tell me where you can gain that kind of interest in today's world. Whatever you give in some capacity, he says, I'll give you a hundred times greater than what you gave me. At some point, your joy, because of what I took, what I used, your joy will be a hundredfold. So why are you hanging on to your talent and your time and your treasure? There's far greater joy in giving it away. You know, through the years, there have been many missionaries, and we just did this child-parent dedication. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny when you do this, you've got the, the parents and the children on stage, but then you have these silly, drooling grandparents out here. And I've seen, throughout my 36 years of ministry, uh, I've seen so many uh, decisions made by children to say yes to the call of God to serve overseas, and they have to take that child, that grandchild, from their, their grandparent. That's a big deal. That's a big sacrifice. And God says, whatever you give, even if you say yes and you go overseas, there will be a hundred times more joy somehow in that family. And even in the early part of the 19th century, when missionaries took their children overseas and the health conditions were so bad that sometimes the missionaries buried their children on the foreign soil, it still applies. Jesus says, I will give you your child back shortly with a hundred times more joy. You just have to trust him for that. He never would take anything from you without a return of a hundredfold joy. The king gives everything back. And then there's a fourth thing. He's a courageous king. 
Why did Jesus enter Jerusalem on a, on a donkey? Because it was a fulfillment, a 700-year-old promise. From the book of Zechariah 9, 9, chapter 9, verse 9, if you want to look it up later. Zechariah 9, the Old Testament, 700 years before we get here. This, is, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, that's Jerusalem, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. So a lot of times in the Old Testament, there were references to God's anointed ruler, we call him Messiah, was a king who was coming for his people. And by riding into Jerusalem on this day, in this manner, fulfilling this prophecy, Jesus was saying, I am Messiah. I'm the promised king. Now, that's very interesting that he would say that. Because up to this point in his three years of ministry, he told people, don't say that. Because you're just going to mess it up if you tell everybody I'm king and you tell them that too early in my going. So Jesus would even get away from crowds when the political furor would would rise to a place where they were saying, now, today, you're king, like John 6. He would sneak away or rebuke them. He wouldn't manipulate them like many politicians would for their gain. He would say, no, I'm not the king. Don't say that. And here he says, I'm the king. Why did he do that? Because this was the time for him to die. And he knew that when he rode into that donkey and declared through Zechariah's prophecy that I'm the king, all of the political and religious elites in the city would have to do one of two things. They would either have to worship him or they would have to murder him. And they knew it would be, he knew it would be the latter. So Jesus rode on that donkey knowing he was riding to his death when he said he was king and messiah. He even knew that he was going to die because of an unusual event that happened the night before he took the ride. I told you that all of these Gospels say this in different places. Well, in John chapter 12, before Jesus rode into town in John chapter 12, in John chapter 12, I told you there was a frenzy around this man named Lazarus. Jesus had risen from the dead, raised from the dead. And so all of the surrounding villages came to see this thing that happened. And while everybody was, you know, ooing and on over Jesus and Lazarus, a woman came into the presence of Jesus and broke an alabaster jar of perfume and anointed Jesus with the oil. Everybody said, that's a waste should give that money to the poor. Don't spend money ever on church. Just give it to the poor, give it to the poor, give it to the poor. And Jesus said, oh, no, no, this is right, what she's done for me. It's good to spend money on me specifically now. And this is what he said, leave her alone. Jesus replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. So she was anointing him as a prophecy that he would die within six days. And you know what's so cool about her anointing of him? She broke an alabaster jar full of perfume. Do you know that when kings entered a town, 
Normally, the horses and the stallions would crush petals, but there would be the smell of perfume when a king came to town. And sure enough, God even remembered to include that detail by the anointing of Mary in John chapter 12. Five days later, he would, he would die, and he knew he was going to die. You know, there's not a lot of soldiers that go into battle knowing they're going to die. There's a lot of soldiers that go into battle saying, I might die, highly likely that I will die the conflict. But there's always this thing, maybe it won't be me, maybe I'll... Jesus knew he was going to die. And that's why he's the king of courage. Knew he was going to die. Then there's a fifth reality about the king, and he's a loving king. We see this again in Matthew 21, 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes gentle, gentle, riding on a donkey. Do you know how kings rode into towns in, in, throughout all of antiquity? Not on donkeys, stallions, 14, 15 hands, giant horses. Because they were coming to make a statement to the villagers, I'm your king, I'm conquering you. And Jesus came on a donkey, which was always an animal associated with peace. Because he said, I'm coming to make peace with you and to forgive you. The good news of the gospel is not that the king of heaven has come to earth. That is not good news. The good news is this king has come to forgive rebels rather than destroy them. If you're a rebel and the new king comes to town, you don't want to say, hey, good to meet you. I just tried to overthrow your kingdom. But everybody in this room has tried to rebel against Christ. We're sinners. But he's not a king that comes to destroy rebels. He comes to forgive rebels. No one in the crowd that day was worthy to be a part of that, of that um, kingdom. They were all sinners. They were all rebels. They were poor. Carpenters, fishermen, laborers. Many of them only owned one cloak the one that they threw down on the ground that the donkey would then walk over. Do you know what would have happened if the Roman Caesar, sort of president of the world type guy, would have seen this event unfold? He's watching a peasant carpenter on a donkey declaring himself to be a king when all of the poor subjects around him throw their tattered clothes on the ground, they don't have any weapons, they don't have any royal banners, all they've got is palm branches that they tore off the trees, and they're shouting because there's no silver trumpets. You know what Caesar would have done at that kind of parade? Laugh at that little group of people who thought they were something. That man who thought they were something. Caesar would have laughed. Pilate laughed. Herod laughed. Yet this king named Jesus said to everybody in that crowd that day, 
I will make you princes and princesses in my kingdom. Look how accessible. Think about Jesus in your mind riding on that donkey through the crowd. Look how accessible he is to the people. No secret security. No fence. No barbed wire. They're touching him. He loves them. He's like them. And he likes them. And the little children playing in the dirt, spinning around, he's laughing at them. This is the kind of king that King Jesus is. He didn't need rich people to build him a palace. He didn't need army men to go to war because his kingdom is not of this world. It's for the next world that he reigns in power, the final world, the perfect world. Then there's a sixth thing we learn about this king. He's a sovereign king. When all the elites of the city heard all of the people chanting praises to him and calling him king, guess what they said? Luke 19, 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, rebuke, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Do you see how long Cancel culture has existed. Evil always tries to silence that which is true and good. But Jesus will not be silenced, and God cannot be canceled. Then Luke 19, Jesus says this to them. I tell you, he replied, if these people keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Is that true? Is that true? That if everybody there, if there would have been nobody showing up that day, would all of those stones in that city turn into the first rock band? Is that true? We don't have to wonder about that. For a few days later, Jesus was crucified by the Roman soldiers and by Jewish leaders. And when they shouted with glee, when they thought that they had silenced the most beautiful mouth in the history of the world, God said, not so fast. When Jesus was crucified and breathed his last, look what happened to the rocks. Matthew 27, 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, he died. At that moment, the earth shook and the rocks the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and he went into the holy city and he appeared to many people. The rocks didn't just cry out, they burst. Because they wanted to make a statement, God wanted to make a statement through them that the end result of the cross was not death, it's life. This was not a tragedy, this is triumph. Satan is the prince of earth who can cause trouble for just a little while, but his home is the lake of fire and Jesus will reign in heaven forever. This brings us to the last observation of our king, the sorrow that he expressed for those who are not part of his kingdom. He's a sorrowful king. This is at the end of the 
the Luke portion, the Luke perspective of Jesus entering Jerusalem in the last week. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, you know, he's on his donkey, he wept over it and said, if you, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. No more peace for these people. Could have had it. Forty years after Jesus said this, the city was destroyed in AD 70. Jerusalem gone. Because despite his miracles and his teachings and his crucifixion and his resurrection, they still rebelled and did not surrender to his kingliness. And that's the last they ever saw of Jesus and ever will in all of eternity. They'll be separated from the glory of his perfect love forever. And it broke his heart because he could do no more than just come. He can't do any more than just come and offer. For you see, the first time that Jesus came, this is why it's going to be so difficult and tragic for those who rebel against his kingliness because the first time he came, the animal that he chose to ride upon was a donkey. But the second time that he comes, he will choose a different animal to ride, which is described in the book of Revelation. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. There's your stallion, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. That's us. We're all the little palm-waving nothings in society, and now we're following him in the last battle. Riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So where are you today in your relationship with Christ? Are you a palm-waving worshiper? Or are you outside of that crowd rebelling and planning to rebel and saying, he's not my king? Look inside that crowd. Tax collectors, fishermen, prostitutes, everybody unworthy, and he invited them all. Raise your hands and I will accept you. You can worship me and live with me forever. But... If you resist me, you rebel against me and say, I am not the king of the universe, nor am I your king. This is the king that you'll face when he returns a second time. Which king will he be for you? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have invited me into the crowd of palm-waving worshipers. If anybody can be forgiven of much sin, dark choices, it's me. You saw it all. You knew that I would have many bad days. And even after 
I met you. You knew that I would still sin. And yet you went to the cross. You rode on that donkey for me. You included me in that crowd with all of my tattered works that have so often been stained with my guilt. There's nothing I'm laying on the ground. There's no sermon I've ever preached or any amount of money I've ever given that is clean apart from you. But when I use it for you, and Lord, when my brothers and sisters, my friends here, our guests, used their life for you, Lord, you take that which would have been dirty and unworthy and you make it clean and righteous. So Lord, I pray for the one who doesn't know you, has never been a part of a palm-waving, hand-raising, Christ-embracing crowd. Would they come today and let you touch them, Jesus, laugh with you, cry with you, give their life to you, give their shame to you, their past, their present, their future, dreams, aspirations, disappointments, disobedience. Lord, may they just come and say, I trust you. I thank you for riding on the donkey to the cross. I thank you for rising from the dead and I thank you, Jesus, that you will give me back everything I ever give to you and you'll give it back a hundred times. Lord, bring somebody to say yes to you, Jesus. And we say, Maranatha, King Jesus, come in all of your justice, come. But would you wait until those here would say yes to you? It's in your name we pray, amen.